The following is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. All right, guys, let's get started. Uh, I realize it's been like uh, five months since I actually taught any cooking hour class. So if you don't know me, my name's Bob. Um, I'm here, uh, I serve on the, at the church here. Um, and uh, it's great to, to finally see you guys again. And I hope you guys had a wonderful last five months to include Christmas, New Year. I think Thanksgiving was in there. And uh, maybe maybe another holiday, too. So I hope I you guys so. uh, all enjoyed that. And yeah, that you enjoyed the equipping our classes taught by <coughs> various students and other pastors. Um, so I wanted to give you just a brief um, overview of what the two services equipping hours going to look like. Um, so if you're like Chris Brown back there, the equipping hours changed names three times since you've been here, Chris. Yeah, so it's going to change the name again. Um, it's going to go to Adult Bible Fellowship. Um, that way it looks really cool when you abbreviate it, ABF. Um, and so you can say I'm going to ABF because EH didn't really sound so cool. So we're doing Adult Bible Fellowship. So it's going to be modeled a little bit after like a small group. Uh, so it is an hour and a half. It'll take place. Our we can we do have the um, the resources to run an adult Bible fellowship during both services. But when we start, we're just going to run it during the second service. So if you want to come, you would go to the first service uh, to hear the the main sermon, and then come during the second service down here uh, for the adult Bible fellowship. So it is going to be an hour and a half. I am not teaching for an hour and a half. Uh, so it's going to, as I said, be set up similar to a small group. So fellowship will be happening in the beginning. And then we'll do like prayer requests and some more announcements, maybe answer some questions that you had. Uh, and if there's somebody who is gifted in the area of music, you could lead us in a song or two, which is fine. Um, or somebody just wants to lead us in a song or two, you don't have to be gifted in music. Um, and, uh, and then after that, we'll do the teaching. Uh, so we're going to continue on through the series. Through the, We have a seven-year schedule set up, if you don't know, how we do equipping hours. So we sat down six years ago, uh, maybe five years, six, six years ago, seven years ago, I forget what it was. And uh, we put together basically a, just a chart of what we thought uh, category-wise uh, of what would be helpful. And so we're just going to continue on that. We have one more year left uh, doing that, so we'll continue doing that through there. Um, so if you guys have any questions about that, feel free to, to ask me afterward, or now. You can ask me now. Yeah, would you have? I'm just wondering how we're going to be seated. I don't, if we're doing fellowship, I don't... Yeah, so we're actually going to be seated the other direction. So the camera's going to move over there. And this room is set up for a cry room or children or families with small children. And so those two rooms are going to be set up. Yes, with fellowship, it's a great question. Actually, I had a phone call on that. Somebody asked me the same thing. Um, and we're going to see how it goes. That's the best I've got. There's going to be, it can't be too bad. There'll be coffee and cookies. So really, at the end of the day, we'll keep you hydrated and well-fed. Um, but yeah, there'll be chairs as well. And so you'll be able to kind of fellowship, maybe sitting in a chair or something like that. So. Um, but yeah, what? So I was thinking tables would be nice. But oh yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. Whatever. Probably not tables. Good idea though. Um, one of the things I encourage you guys just overall as we as we transition to two services, we have spent countless hours trying to pinpoint every little detail that needs to be taken care of. And I promise you, from the absolute bottom of my heart, we have missed stuff. 
Um, because not only are we not perfect, I know Mark, it's surprising, um, but nothing we do is perfect. And so you've got two things going against you, uh, or going against us. So as we, as we come together and as we do this, just keep in mind, just have some grace and be fluid and realize like we're not striving for perfection um, because we can't be perfect, but we are trying to make things run smoothly. So if you see something and you say, hey, this is an area that you know could be shored up in, in some way or taken care of, if you have a question, please feel free to shoot us an email or talk to us um, because we can't see everything. We have uh, sat down and tried to take care of everything that we can see, uh, but unfortunately we all have blind spots. So. That's just generally speaking with the two services as they start uh, in, in a couple of weeks. So in any event, we are starting Biblical Ethics. Uh, if you have your copy of your notes, uh, this class, it got moved because obviously we didn't meet last week. And so it got, we missed one week, so we're going to, be, going to be doing it for five weeks. Uh, so today, we're just going to start with what are Biblical Ethics? Basically just trying to answer the question... Um, look a little historically what that was, and then um, how it is that we ourselves can look at biblical ethics. So that first sentence there, the challenge is placed upon every Christian to live as Christ in every area of their life during every moment of their life. Um, Christianity has uh, the really bad reputation of separating the Christian life from life. Uh, so if you've ever been to a country that is run by a religious organization. So you have, what do you say, Muslim country, or, you know, we were uh, in South Africa, it was a Dutch reformed country. So the church dictated everything that happened. The Islamic regime dictated everything that happened. The Coptic church, the Orthodox church. So when you go to a country every, that's run by a, a religious sect, everything that pertains to life goes underneath that. Have you ever been out to Utah? It's a really good example. I lived in Utah for a while, and so if you were a member of a Mormon church, the job that you worked at automatically took tithes out of your paycheck and went right to your church that you were at, right? And so it was everything, and I'm not saying that's right by any stretch. I'm just saying everything revolved around that, so your whole life was in uh, a reflection of what you believe. Now, those examples are forced upon people, right? So the, the government run by a religious organization is forcing it down onto the people. We're not advocating for that, as you'll come to see. What I am advocating for is, do you view your life, your entire life, from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed, in view of you being a Christian? So the interactions that you have with people, the, the time that you spend doing anything, the job that you work at, the movies that you watch, the food that you eat, the articles that you read, the conversations that you have, everything viewed through the lens of you being a Christian. Because Christianity has this really bad habit of separating these things. And so ethically, if you look there at 1 Peter 1, the second bullet point, it says, As obedient children do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in some of your behavior. No, it says all of your behavior. Well, why should we do that? We have a causal statement. Why are we to be holy in all of our behavior? Because God is holy. So everything that we do then falls under the lens of we need to be holy 
because God is holy. Unless you get discouraged because we still sin, we'll talk about that at the end as well. So really the purpose of this class is not only to define ethics and the importance of finding our ethics from the Bible, but what we want to look at is how should Christians be thinking in this age? And I think oftentimes we, we not only separate things, but we kind of turn our mind off sometimes. And uh, we passively take in information, not even realizing that the information that we're taking in. And it influences us. And if you look at that bullet point or uh, footnote number one, I just want to make sure that at the bottom, the guy's name is David Burgraff, one of my seminary professors. The information I get from him was from like notes and syllabus that, that I was taught. And so there's nothing published by him on this specifically. And, uh, and so I can't reference like here's this you know, specific uh, a book or something that he wrote. But it was just in class. And the guy's absolutely amazing. Um, I love listening to him uh, when he was teaching the ethics class. And it's a two, three, I don't know, 400-page note thing that we had to work through, which... You know, a lot of those people that write those, they're just like, take it and use it, I don't care. Um, and so I just want to make sure you understand who he is. He's at um, Shepherd's Theological Seminary, and just a, a real great brother. But So, uh, as he wrote there, our world is a marketplace of ideas, and whether the ideas we face are religious, political, economic, social decisions about whose ideas are unavoidable, we have to make choices. When it comes to making choices, we have entered the realm of ethics. He says, we are all ethicists. Each day of our lives, we face decisions about how we should live. As we do, we realize that many of the choices we make are not devoid of significance. Rather, we know that somehow, in some way, they do matter. In fact, in short, we are continually making decisions that are ethical in nature. Um, and so I, the, the main thrust of that is the choices we make... Uh, have two things, right? They have intended and unintended consequences, every choice that we make. And so you think about your time, right? So every time, uh, every, every time you choose to do something with your time, which is a non-renewable resource, right? We all have the exact same amount of time in a day. You are purposely choosing to do something to the neglect of doing something else, whether unintended or not. So that choice is an ethical choice. Meaning, what you're doing with your time, is it there to glorify God? Uh, is it there for you making the choice from a, a standpoint of this is what I want to do? And I'm not saying that's bad, right? Because we say that what we want to do should be what God wants to do as well. Uh, we have a new nature that's in us. But the, the point I'm trying to make is every single choice that we make is a neglect of something else. So like today, you chose to come to church to the neglect of sleeping in or going snowmobiling or whatever it is, right, that you, you would do otherwise. So we're always making choices, and, and those choices are ethical in nature. And as it says there, Second uh, Peter 3.17, You therefore, uh, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on guard so that, so we're on guard for the purpose that we're not carried away, because we don't want to be carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from our own steadfastness. And I just want you to notice here, Peter gives this command, right? So we have an imperative, be on guard. So he's commanding us to do this. And the purpose of this command, which I find fascinating, he says, so that you are not carried away. That's actually a passive verb. That's something that happens to you without you doing anything. So he's saying you have two options, right? There's no neutral ground. Option number one is you be on guard so that you're not carried away. Or option number two is you're not on guard and then you are carried away. So it's not you walking away, realize this. It is you being carried away 
Well, what are you being carried away by? He says there, the error of unprincipled men. And as you're carried away from unprincipled men, well, what happens? You fall from your own steadfastness. So we need to constantly be on guard uh, so that we're not carried away. And if you think about your mind, it's constantly being fought over by the world for control. Think about the things that you're, you're taught. I, I watched a, 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 a trailer to a documentary on, on, uh, on transgenderism that's coming out. And one of the um, reports that came out uh, was this investigative reporter had went and asked the, the school system, uh, the counselors that were there, what are you counseling the parents with? What is your, what's the, the tagline, if you will? And uh, she said, well, what we tell them is, if, say you have a son who wants to be a girl. And so let's say, well, you can either have a daughter who is alive or a son who is dead. What would you like to choose? Because what they're saying is if you don't allow your child to transition to the gender they believe that they are, they're going to die. So this marketplace of ideas that we live in, you either say, I'm on guard against that and I realize the futility of it and I know what the Bible says, or we're carried away by what? Unprincipled men. Meaning they don't care about ethics. And so then your fear and your emotions and all of that take over. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, you see the last bullet point there in his groundbreaking book, How Should We Live, or How Should We Then Live? Uh, I like this quote. He said, People have presuppositions and they will live more consistently on the basis of those presuppositions than even they themselves may realize. Very, very powerful. Meaning that a presupposition is something that we hold to be true. So we will live by what we hold to be true even more so than we may realize. And, and this was a time, he wrote this in the 70s, in the late 70s. Uh, and I liked what one, uh, that Gospel Coalition writer there, he had said, words like worldview and truth claims were not even in common language of the church. Schaefer was also right in the promises of personal peace and affluence were the greatest threats to evangelical faithfulness. See what he said there? The promises of personal peace and affluence are the greatest threats to evangelical faithfulness. Meaning that our presupposition is that we should have peace. Our, our foundational idea is that we should have peace. Our presupposition is that we should have affluence. And so now we're making choices based off of having personal peace and having affluence as opposed to making choices based off of the holiness of God. And if you never read that book, I haven't read the whole book in its entirety, but I would highly recommend it. And he says, in other words, how Christians respond to what's going on around them in culture is going to be a direct reflection of their understanding of biblical ethics. And then just by way of introduction, here are some various rudimentary ethical systems that we're going to look at uh, and uh, that you may already be familiar with. So I just wanted to, this is just a brief overview of, of maybe what you've heard or maybe what you even said. And um, what we want to do is look at these, and then we're going to flesh these out and look at what are these systems. And what I want to do is we're going to go through some of the hot topics of Christian ethics or biblical ethics over the last couple of weeks, and then see how these systems bear on them versus how the Bible actually comes down on them. Um, so, you know, you maybe heard some of these, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, cultural relativism. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what somebody else is doing, or it doesn't matter the ethical system, it matters what everybody else is doing. So as long as I'm doing it, everybody else is doing, then it's really not that big of a deal. Um, I couldn't help myself, so behaviorism. I just had to do it. Um, be good, just virtue ethics. Why don't you be good? 
mean, obviously, just with that statement right there, you run into a whole host of problems. The first questions you should ask somebody if they say that is, what's good, right? And then when they define the good to you, say, well, where do you find that at? <coughs> uh, ethical egoism, look out for number one. So you might say, hey, I need to look out for myself because nobody else is. So I'm making these decisions based on my best interest. Uh, the greatest good for the greatest number, utilitarianism. Uh, it's your duty, Cantinian ethics. You just have to do it. Now, some of these you'll, you'll realize that they are biblical in nature, right? There is a duty to a Christian that you just have to do regardless of if you want to or not, right? Like there are things that we need to do. And so some of these um, will kind of uh, weave in and out even with, with what we call biblical ethics. Um, all you need is love, situation ethics, right? Once again, the great question to ask if you ever have somebody say that is what is love, right? Like define love. Um, you have do whatever comes naturally, the natural law ethics, based heavily on uh, evolution. And then you have God said it, I believe, and that settles it, the divine command theory. So no matter what, uh, we just follow exactly what God says because he said it, which there's truth in that, right? Like God gives a command not to do something, and we should not be doing it. If God gives a command to do something, then we should be doing it, right? So the divine command theory, we'll look at all these. Um, but just for today, it says here, all we want to do is properly define ethics, show how each person, regardless of their religious views, makes decisions based upon ethical presuppositions uh, for the purpose of this class so we're not going to distinguish between biblical ethics and Christian ethics so one can make a case that not all who call themselves Christians believe in the inerrancy and sufficiency of the Bible so I'm not, I don't want to get into you know trying to get between the two of Christian ethics and biblical ethics but just kind of you can understand Christian ethics is kind of an application of biblical ethics and so biblical ethics would be what do you believe the Bible to say about things that are right and wrong. And then you could go, okay, then Christian ethics is how do we apply that knowledge that we have? And so that's where we get into great things. Uh, maybe you heard quite a bit over the year 2020 is the term gray area, right? And so that's the Christian ethics would be, there are some things you read through scripture. We know that the Bible does not um, talk about every single situation you're ever going to be in. It doesn't. It's not a handbook uh, for everything that you're ever going to face, right? So there are principles that we have to pull out of Scripture. And then once we start getting into principles is where you then get into, well, how do we now um, navigate these principles? And that's where you get the term gray area from. So really, I'll use these terms interchangeably um, just, for, uh, just, just for my own sake so you guys understand. Uh, so is morality imprinted on every person? Are Christians the only people who are able to live a morally sound life? Do other people who are not saved understand morality? Do they even understand biblical morality? Uh, most people uh, put together having a good life with living a morally sound life. Those two things would go really well together. Most people also tell you what, uh, about their life that they don't do wrong or what they consider to be wrong in order to tell you that they have a good life. So they would say, I pay my taxes, I haven't murdered anybody, so I'm living a good life. So if you think about it, what they're actually saying is there's an absence of good in their life, of them doing good. So they're starting from a negative is what I'm trying to tell you. I'm not doing these things, so therefore I have a good life. The Christian life is saying the things that you're doing is actually showing, right? Jesus said, do unto others. He didn't say, don't do to people what you don't want done to you. The Christian life starts with the positive or the doing, 
the, the kind of culturally norm life, normative life that they would say is good starts with what you're not doing. So they would say, I'm a good person because I'm not doing this. Where we would say, well, the Bible says we are to be doing things. And that's kind of where you start uh, diverging with ethics from a, uh, a secular culture. So they would say the absence of evil would mean that you're living a good life, right? Which there's a part of that we would agree. We, we shouldn't be living an evil life and consider it good. The difference is we're basing it on what Scripture says. So, yeah. Um, Ten Commandments, are big, a lot of them are do-nots. Right. Um, and that's part of the, I guess you might say, Old Testament ethics, which aren't necessarily negated in the New Testament, aren't, aren't negated in the New Testament. So we have both, is it fair to say we have both do-nots and do's? Oh yeah, you read through the New Testament, absolutely, yeah. The law is not applicable to the Christian though, right? And so that's what Jesus came to say. And though that's why, um, like if you, it, and that, that, that always, uh, you know, it, it makes me smile a little bit. Because if you just take love, right, biblical love, and imagine if we actually love people the way we were supposed to. You would need zero laws, right? So you think about your, you have kids. If you have kids and you have a car seat, something really simple. If you actually loved your child, you wouldn't have to have a law to tell you to put them in a car seat, right? We do it because we want to see our child survive if we get in a car crash and all of those kind of things, right? Think about, um, you know, murdering somebody. If you actually love somebody, you wouldn't have to have a law against that. And so when we step up into to the New Testament, we see Jesus when he's saying, like, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, there is no greater commandment because the law doesn't dictate that. We should be loving people the way that Christ loved us. Well, how does Christ love us? Well, he gave his life for us. That's the standard that we have, right? Is That's how we show love. And so that's what we're held to as believers, um, to, to live that way. So you think of any law whatsoever, it's all based on the fact that we haven't properly shown love to people. Because if you know anything about the thousands of laws that are on the books, if, if a law actually worked, we wouldn't have to give a second one to explain the first one. To then expound on the second one, we give a third one, right? And so, so on down the line. But unfortunately... We just don't want to love people the way that Christ loved us. So, the second bullet point there, from a Christian worldview, morality is built into the fabric of the universe, is built into our constitution as human beings. So, in other words, Christians, we believe that every person has the capacity to do right and wrong simply because they were created in the image of God. People can do right things that aren't safe, right? Like, they can... You have great doctors and nurses who aren't saved who, who help people. You have people designing bridges and buildings and houses and all of those things that are done for the betterment of society and they're making right choices. If you were just to take the book of Proverbs and look at how you are to live and you just applied that to your life without being saved, you would live a very good life. There's just good practical wisdom that is in there, right? So there is something built into an individual and it says, while an evolutionist may believe that man has an innate ability to tell the difference between right and wrong, they do not see it as being from God, but from a place of evolution. And I found this great quote from a psychology article in the New York Times. And it said, both atheists and people belonging to a wide range of faith make the same moral judgment, Dr. Hauser writes. And I like this, implying that the system that unconsciously generates moral judgment is immune to religious doctrine. I find that funny. So just because you've evolved long enough, 
means that you're going to act like the people who, who uh, are doing things. Though you may claim it's from being religious, but it's actually there because we finally evolved enough to know the difference. So we can see the same fact. So he's saying, yeah, people are living in a moral way, but he's just saying we, we started from a very different point. And I always say, well, thankfully, yeah, we weren't killing each other you know, with our immorality, so that at least a few people lived over the last billions of years to actually get us to where we are today, right? And so you see Romans 2 there. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So the Bible says all men, regardless of their eternal destination, have God's law written in their hearts. And how do we know this? A pirate has no problem stealing from someone, but when you steal from that pirate, he gets angry. <laughs> right? So he understands, don't steal, right? Um, but he, he also understands that he wants to steal. So he would say that's the ethical system of egoism, right? Like looking out for number one. Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve ate the fruit they were not supposed to. What did they do when God came after that? Uh, when God came to them after that, Genesis 3.8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and what they do? Hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Well, how did they know to hide themselves? It wasn't like somebody came in and said, okay, now that you've sinned, you're, you, we're, we want you to feel shame, we want you to feel um, you know, distrust. No. It's built into mankind. They knew they did wrong. And the first thing they wanted to do when they did wrong was hide themselves from God. This means God reveals what he desires to mankind both internally in the heart and mind and externally he has spoken. And overall, one would be hard-pressed to find someone who would want to live in a society where there are no morals at all. I don't think I would, I don't think, and obviously I've not studied every single society that's ever been around, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a group of people who say, I want to live in a society that, that is completely immoral. I would say this at the next bullet point here at the top of the page. Uh, we may disagree about the details of morality, but we are clear on the connection between morality and a good society. And so we, we would rather have a few rules in place to make sure things run smoothly. So there is something built in. I mean, even anarchists schedule meetings, right? Um, and so it's like you, you, there's something inside of us that still wants some order that's there. And uh, the raised point there, we often miss as Christians, we often think people want to live in a society where anything goes. I don't think that's true at all. I think most people want to live in a society where they get to dictate what is good and what is evil. Right. And so that's where we live now is we get to they want to say what is good and what is evil based upon themselves. Most people want a high moral ethic for what they consider big sins, murder, stealing, etc. But then the minor sins, we should have more flexibility with that. So that's where you say like, you know, well this guy was hungry, that's why he stole. And so stealing then is okay as long as you're hungry. Right? And so we'll we'll talk about all those things. But that's what I'm talking about, their flexibility with minor sins. So, the Christian does not seek to have their own desires as a standard for ethical living. That's what we need to remember. But rather, they desire to have God's holy standard for their course of life. And so I want to do a brief, just a brief excursus here on uh, the issue of theonomy. Um, it's really big in Christian circles now because of post-millennialism coming back. So if you're not familiar with post-millennialism, we would be called pre-millennial here, meaning we're expecting the return of Jesus Christ before the millennial kingdom. And so then you have a thousand-year reign of Christ with his saints. Uh, and then at the end of the Millennial Kingdom, he destroys Satan, uh, Revelation 20 and 21, or 19, 20, 21, you can see this played out. 
and then the new heavens and the new earth are, are established. What a post-millennial says is that Christ is going to be ushered in uh, by the world being changed into Christianity. So the, it's going to be, we're going from better, or worse to better. I can't even say it. Right? We're not even going from worse to better. We're going from worse to worser. And, uh, and so a post-millennial would believe that the world's getting better. And the world gets better the more that Christians are uh, in politics, so getting elected into various offices, the more that they take over school systems, the more they take over uh, every, every level of everything in society, as the church takes that over, then you're going to be ushering in the reign of Christ, right? And so that's what they believe. How they do that uh, is right here through what they call theonomy. So the question is, should we desire to have God's law as our standard over us? So that's, that's really the overarching question here. Um, and the two Greek words there, theos and namos, uh, mean, theos means God, namos means law. So essentially what it means is uh, theonomist is one who believes that society should be governed by the law of God. Now, you have kind of different branches of theonomy, but generally speaking, they would say everything from the Old Testament needs to be in place now as a law governing uh, the world that we're living in. And I'll just briefly go over this. I put three bullet points down. Theonomists teach that the true mission of the church can be seen in the mandate God gave to Adam in the garden to take dominion over the earth and subdue it. Though Adam sinned and brought the curse upon the earth, Christ came to save his people, which includes enabling us to accomplish the original mandate given to Adam. So we are, as a New Testament church, to subdue the earth. Meaning, subdue meaning everything that's on the earth. Not just the earth as in the dirt, but everything that's on the earth. One of the, well, there's four or five massive faults with, with uh, post-millennialism. But one of the greatest ones uh, is that they believe the church started with Adam. Now, I would, I would challenge you. I would give you anything you want in this entire world if you could find the church one time referenced anywhere in the entire Old Testament. Anywhere. You can read it in any language that you want. You can Google search any book that you want. You find the church reference anywhere in the Old Testament. You have my word. It's being recorded. I am more than happy to give you any desire that you may have. Because you know what? It's not there. It's not there at all. Right? You have to be able to read into something. So they say because, because Adam was given this mandate and he failed, you had to wait... 4,000 years for the church to come and now the church is going to fulfill that where is that connected in the Bible I'll give you a hint nowhere <laughs> right not one spot is it connected in scripture so the next one there yeah are theocracy and theonomy the same thing or different things uh, theocracy would be was that theonomy is the law of God theocracy is being well, ruled by God like Israel was a theocracy um, so similar, uh, but we don't see the theocracy would be God ruling over the nation, like as he's interacting through Moses. The government would be, the, would be a religious organization. Uh, if they're saying they're hearing from God. Yeah, right. So Moses would have been the representative. So when they went from a theocracy to a monarchy is when Saul became the king. And then it no longer was that. Even David was a monarchy, even though he, he was a prophet, but he wasn't, it, was, it wasn't a theocracy at that time because they went to being ruled by a man. So 
Yeah, yeah. They're one speaking of like the law that's in the land, the other speaking of who's <coughs> ruling them. So what they're saying is that church is representative to go back to Adam and take all of that on. So not a theocracy, but a theonomy. So they don't see God as interacting with an individual like he did with Israel. That would be a theocracy. Yeah. Uh, and then the next point there, the church, so what they say, and this is just from their own, from their own stuff here. Uh, the church has not fully accomplished its mission by preaching the Lord Jesus, his law, and his gospel to every tribe for the conversion of the souls and the building of the church. Rather, the church must also work for the transforming the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus, our Lord and Christ. It does this by teaching the nations God's law and working to implement it. They also believe the church will assert its dominion promised by the gospel through the masculine leadership of godly men in their homes, churches, and societies. And just make sure you understand the first four words of the next bullet point. We are not theonomists. <laughs> that is not what our church believes at all. Right. Um, if you look at the next uh, page, we firmly and unapologetically believe that the only hope for any person is the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they would be saved from their sin and only then are able to live according to God's commands. Realize this. We do believe that mankind can follow God's commands, but we do not believe unsaved man can follow God's commands. They need to be born again. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, when Paul says, put off the old man and put on the new in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, and when he, he tells his, the husbands to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and the wives to submit to your husbands, right? Those things can be done by born-again believers, but it can't be legally dictated down and then expect people to do those things. And then the just the last... You know, last bullet point there, we cannot reform the flesh, making pagans hold dear to a biblical standard, right? So that's not our goal as believers. So that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about ethics and, and morals. Now, we certainly want to vote. We have privileges in this country that are unheard of in the world, right? The idea of voting, the idea of having petitions, <coughs> peaceful assemblies, and all of those things, those are well within... Uh, the rights that we have been given to be able to do. And so we would certainly tell people to do those things uh, to the glory of God. Yeah. Is that where Christian nationalism comes in? Yeah, that's a whole other can. But yeah, that would be Christian nationalism, right? Uh, which, uh, for the record, we're not Christian nationalists either. Uh, we don't believe that God's gift to the world was the United States. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah. I mean, you can love your country. You know, many of us served in the military, and it's fine to, to love your country, but we don't believe that the United States is going to save anybody. Nor do we believe because you're an American citizen, you're automatically a Christian, right? So yeah, th those things certainly, there is a, a, a big overlap that's there. Um, and uh, if you want to know more about that, we as elders have worked through all that and have some great resources too, but that's a good question. Uh, and so, what are ethics, what are biblical ethics? The next, uh, the next heading there. Um, so what... Uh, so what are ethics? General, eth general ethics is the discipline or branch of philosophy that seeks to determine what ought to be the universal moral character and conduct of mankind. Realize the term there, universal. So what we're saying is we have something that tells us what we should all be doing all the time. right? So that's why we have to be very, very careful when we talk about biblical ethics. Because we live in a country where anything you want to do, you can do. Right? And you, you, it's really easy to make broad statements. It's really easy to say, oh, you can go over here and do that. And you can go over here and do that. And when you go into another country that may be more socialist or communist, uh, 
and you don't have those, and then you start criticizing people for not doing those things, we start to mix up a right of an American versus a biblical mandate. So we can't say that every church has to meet like this, right? You have to meet on this day and this place and this building and do this because that's what the Bible demands, right? If you're not doing that, then you're really not doing Christianity. What we're saying is if you're not meeting like an American church, then you're not doing Christianity. That's wrong, right? Are we to gather together? Absolutely, without a doubt. The Bible certainly dictates that. But we need to be very, very careful when we're especially speaking about ethics that is coming from what Scripture says and not what our American society has afforded us the opportunity to do. And so the next uh, sentence there, ethics is the study of how humans ought to live as informed by the Bible and Christian convictions. And we all have different convictions. That's a wonderful thing, right? And so, but our convictions should be based upon what Scripture says. It's okay to have a different conviction about the same thing as long as we're going in to see what Scripture has to say about it, right? Uh, and then I'm going to skip the rest. You can read it. It gets a little bit heavy right there. And uh, I'm talking about describing human behavior. And so if you look to the next main bullet point, it says what this means is as we study ethics, our goal is not to look at what people are doing. I know it sounds really strange, right? We are not looking at our culture and critiquing them for their actions. Why? We want to expose the why behind their doing. What is the ethical system that's driving them to that behavior? Very similar to what you hear if you've ever sat through any biblical counseling classes. Yes, the outward action is going to show us something, but what is it going to show us? The idol or belief that's actually in the heart. So as you're looking at the action, which is why, you know, look at our normal society here. And you look at children's suicide rate is through the roof. I don't know if you know that or not. They are just dying in mass from suicide. Why? Because they're telling them you can be whatever gender you want. You, you know, you can do uh, surgeries. You can, like, all of these things. They're just giving these kids these massive amount of rights. You can't drive a car until you're 16, but you can decide what gender you are when you're five. Right? And oh, by the way, don't tell your parents. Right? Don't, don't, and if your parents talk to you and use a different pronoun, then you can actually get them in trouble now. Some are being jailed. And some are being jailed for it. And so that should kill your heart to know that something like this is being propagated. And so, we're, so now they're saying, well, why are these kids committing suicide? Well, they're committing suicide because, well, it must be either the religious organizations are coming against them and not being who they're supposed to be not letting them be who they're supposed to be, or it's the parents that aren't affirming what they're supposed to be. So they're looking at the action, and they're saying, here's how we can rectify this. What we're saying is, or I'm saying is, we see the action, this very high suicide rate, we need to get down to the root of this worldview. And if we can attack this at the root of the worldview, well, guess what? You're going to start changing the actions. But you're not going to change the actions simply by looking at the actions. You need to work backwards and see how this happened. That's what we're talking about. We want to expose that why. What's driving the behavior, not just the behavior? Plus, Bob, they're making suicide so easy for everyone. Yeah, and yeah. Especially in Canada. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a sad state. And so, for example there, just to, to kind of flesh out a little bit what I'm saying, the ethical system of na uh, nature or natural ethics, do whatever comes naturally. And just an example, natural law in its simplest form refers to a type of moral theory that as as asserts the existence of objective universal moral laws that can decipher through plain reason and logic. Now, the first thing that should pop in your mind when you read that is what? Three words. Depravity of man. <laughs> right? Because what are they basing it on? 
plain reason and logic. That has been tainted by sin. You cannot find that truth through plain reason and logic, right? So human dignity, do not steal, do not murder. One can defend them own selves, them, their own selves. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These all fall under what's called natural law moral theory. And it's interesting that while the claim in these comes from man's own reason, some of these are actually found in the Bible. They're showing that God's law is, in fact, written on the hearts of all of mankind. So essentially, man's been trying to figure out how they are to live since the beginning of time. And then how we live thus shows the ethical system that we hold to. And lest you think everyone just holds to one ethical system, uh, the decisions that we make throughout the course of the day can be based on a dozen different ones, right, as we're, as we're making decisions and things come before us. <coughs> And then, so what are biblical ethics? Biblical ethics concentrates primarily upon the ends or the purposes of life as defined or implied by the Word of God. The Christian or biblical ethical system is distinct from other systems because it's built on theistic realism, meaning there is a God and He has spoken. We believe that there is a real God and we believe that He has spoken to us and we believe that He has given us the ability to understand what He has said. And then ethics always involves the question of authority. Biblical ethics is theocentric as opposed to secular philosophical ethics, which tends to be more anthropocentric, meaning theo meaning God, so centering on God, versus anthro meaning man, being uh, centered on man. So we're not looking for what's the greatest thing for man. We're looking what's the greatest thing for God. So for the secularist, man is the norm. What do men do? For the Christian, we want to say what's God's character? What does God want? What does God desire? So we're living a life focused on God. And so just some affirmations. You know, biblical ethics affirms the existence of moral absolutes. A moral absolute is something that should or should not be done all the time regardless of the circumstance or situation. There's a universal ethical standard which applies to actions regardless of the context that you're in. They must always be done or always not be done. Biblical ethics is obligatory or deontological. So the, the Greek word deo, you can learn today, means it is necessary. So these are done because God has said they are to be done. So there is an obligatory uh, uh, fashion to it. If we're born again, then our duty is to follow what God has said, right? <clears throat> Biblical ethics is perfectly modeled by Jesus. He's our example of what a life rightly lived looks like. Jesus always did what was right in every situation, regardless of the consequences. Biblical ethics recognizes and participates in God's moral order. Biblical ethics affirms that immorality stems from the human will and not from ignorance or social conditions. Evil comes from within man, meaning there's sin nature, not from without and then I would say this is probably the greatest separation between biblical ethics and every other ethical system. Biblical ethics starts with the understanding or with the firm belief or the presupposition that man is immoral because of what is inside of him. Man is not evil because of his environment nor because of his upbringing. We would certainly see these things as influential but never as causative. Man does what he wants because of what's inside of him. And once again, as I said, Christians do not claim the Bible to be exhaustive, meaning it does not 
talk about every single situation you're ever going to be in. It's silent on many things. Uh, and I just like this paragraph I read. It says, including many moral problems we face today, problems within biomedical ethics, for example, problems about responsibility to unborn generations and about population control. Someone might say that we should draw our conclusions on such matters from other things the Bible says, perhaps for more general principles, but then we have invoked a structure of ethical thought which distinguishes general principles from more specific matters and which employs modes of moral reasoning. That is what ethical theory is all about. Meaning, when you don't get something specifically said in the Bible, whether right or wrong, then you're going to have to say, okay, what does the Bible say collectively about this? And how can I draw my conclusions from that? And then the, the next paragraph there, at times we're confronted with moral dilemmas in which uh, every available option is morally undesirable and a decision cannot be avoided or postponed. Suppose that in Nazi-occupied Holland, you're hiding Jews in your attic and the Gestapo comes searching for them. Do you lie to save innocent lives or do you forfeit innocent lives to save lying? Whatever you do will violate some moral rule or another. How then do you choose and to what extent are you blameworthy? Ethics addresses such questions about moral choices and exceptions to moral rules and about the extent of moral responsibility. That was actually a really good class, right? uh, talking about... Um, you know, lying to the Jews. There's a lot written on that, actually. I had no idea, but um, but uh, we'll, we'll talk about those kind of things. And then where do we get our sources for ethics? And we'll end here. Uh, the teaching of scriptures are the final court of appeals in ethics. You have to realize that always. The, what the Bible says. So you have human reason, church tradition, the natural and social sciences may aid in moral reflection, meaning they may give us some more information about something, but Divine revelation found in the canonical scriptures of the Old and New Testament constitutes the bottom line of decision-making process. The Word of God must cast the deciding vote. So where do biblical ethics come from? It may seem like an obvious question, but this can be the defining difference between those who hold to biblical ethics and those who hold to Christian ethics, the source of those ethics. Because there are people who say, look, God gives wisdom to other people, which is certainly true, right? But that wisdom is fallible, especially when compared with what the Bible says. So we can take that wisdom. We don't just want to throw it all out and say, no, no, no one can ever say anything that's wise. We want to take that wisdom and see how it aligns with what the scriptures have to say. How has the church historically done this before? You know, how are other churches handling this situation now? So we take all those things into consideration. And I would actually assert, that's what Paul says in Ephesians, that we're to walk circumspectly. And circumspectly means to take all the wisdom, look at your whole surroundings, and then we walk in such a way that is wise, but we always have to make sure that we're falling not on man's wisdom, but we're going back to what the scriptures have to say. And then source for the ethics, uh, God's character is good. You see Psalm 119, you are good and do good. Uh, God approves of creatures who conform to his moral character. Matthew 5, 48, as your heavenly father is perfect, you do, you do too. You know, Colossians 3, 9, right now we're all being renewed according to the image of the one who created us. Our new self is becoming more like God, therefore we should be imitating God's character more and more. And like I said before, just so we're clear, we sin, we make poor ethical choices. But when we confess that to God, we repent that to God, did you know that we're then following his ethical standard? So yes, when you sin and you make a poor choice and you do what you're not supposed to do, that is going against God's ethical standard. But when you confess that to God and you repent to God, now you're going back to God's ethical standard, right? And so the only way we're going to know what God considers right or wrong is by going to the scriptures. That's it. We study the Bible.
And uh, if we go to the Bible, it's not our. If we go to the Bible, it's not uh, only our source, but also our authority. And I think that's where we fall in today. A big issue is just where is our authority, um, and we need we need the Bible. We need God to be our, our final and ruling authority. So, so you can read that last page. Just some more um, stuff, and we'll look over the Bible's authority next week as we get into it. But it's uh, two minutes after. Um, let me uh, let me just pray for us, and uh, we will continue next week. If you have any questions, you can come on up and ask me now. But let me just pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who you've given us uh, so that we can walk in such a way that honors and glorifies you. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, just for loving us and for giving us standards that, um, Lord, not only are good because you've done them and set them, but Lord, they're good because you love us and you want to see us uh, live life to honor and glorify you. So Lord, we thank you. We love you. and just pray that you would bless our day further in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.